everybody. Hello, welcome to the UCSD Library. Thank you all for joining us on this wonderfully drizzly afternoon. Um, we're thrilled to be hosting the new writing series here today. My name is Nina Mamakunian. I'm the literature and theater dance librarian. Um, if you have any questions about the library, I'm more than happy to stick around after and answer them for you. Uh, part of my position is also the curator for the new archive, or the archive for new poetry in our special collections. Uh, this reading is being recorded for the archive, so if you'd like to listen to it afterwards, they usually go up about a week or two after the reading. Um, because it's being recorded uh, for the Q&A afterwards, we do have some handheld mics, so if you have a question, please wait until we can get to you uh, with the microphone. Um, other than that, uh, just a couple quick things. The water fountain and the restrooms are right outside that back door. And if you do need to leave the reading early, we ask that you please use that back door so you don't disturb the reading happening up here. All right, thank you, everybody. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Brandon Som. I'm a professor and poet here in the literature department and director of the new writing series. And we're thrilled to have the wonderful Kate Bernstein here for us to read uh, this afternoon. And we're so thrilled to have you here. Um, our MFA graduate student, Adriana Tosin, will be uh, introducing Kate. And uh, we'll have Adriana up here next. But before that, just a couple quick announcements. want to uh, remind you about devices. If you could turn those down, um, silence those so they don't go off and disturb us during the reading. Um, also want to uh, uh, point over here to Sage and the UCSD bookstore, who is uh, ex uh, kind enough to be here and generous enough to be here. They're selling books. They have uh, Kate Bern Bernheimer's books here for sale. So please uh, pick up a book after the reading. Um, uh, meet the writer. Uh, maybe you'll get a signature in the book. That'll be exciting, too. So uh, please stop by and say hi to Sage. Um, looking ahead, uh, we have one last um, amazing event uh, coming up for the winter quarter for the new writing series. We have uh, the Centering the Margins uh, Writers of Color Conference. It is uh, happening uh, not this weekend, but the weekend after, uh, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, with events uh, here on campus in the Price Center at the Cross-Cultural Center, um, and as well as events downtown in the San Diego Library. So uh, there is a Facebook site for uh, 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 the conference. Uh, you can find a link to that site at our uh, site for the new writing series. So please check it out, and please uh, come and attend, attend and come join us for the conversation. Uh, again, so thrilled to be here, so excited for the reading. Please put your hands together for Adriana Tosin. Hello, um, my name is Adriana, as we said, and I'm a, a first year MFA student in the writing program here at UCSD. And let me introduce Kate. Like the subjects of her books, Kate Bernheimer is many things. Yarn spinner, professor, award winner, and very possibly a double agent between reality as we know it and some alternate universe that operates by fairy tale logic. She is the author of a novel trilogy and the story collections Horse, Flower, Bird, and How a Mother Weaned Her Girl from Fairy Tales. She co-authored with Laird Hunt a recent novella, Office at Night, which was a finalist for the 2015 Shirley Jackson Awards, and she is the editor of four anthologies, including My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me, 40 New Fairy Tales, which won the World Fantasy Award. 
Bernheimer is also the co-editor of Fairy Tale Architecture, and her nonfiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Los Angeles Times, and Marvels and Tales, the Journal of Fairy Tale Studies, among other places. She has, in fact, been called one of the living masters of fairy tale. As all the best fairy tales do, Bernheimer's work inhabits surreal spaces. Her heroines and heroes have to somehow find their way through an opaque and powerful universe. Humans and animals shapeshift their way through unspeakable danger, sometimes literally, sometimes in absurd metaphysical uh, contortions. On occasion, despite characters' best efforts, they find themselves locked in houses too heavy for words, as in the story Tale of Disappearance. In the shadowy land of fairy, after all, words carry power. Words make reality. The logic of the fairy tale is the logic of poetry, synesthetic and correlative. Perhaps this is why Bernheimer's work is so difficult to categorize. Many of her pieces inhabit the liminal space between poetry and prose, calling truth into question at every opportunity. Yet the magic of world-making is not a responsibility Bernheimer takes lightly. Her tales are spare, often elegant, and tinged by brutality. But the harsh justice meted out for her characters' mistakes is seasoned by mercy, or at least sympathy. Unlike the perfect and meek archetypes who inhabit more familiar and sanitized fairy tales, Bernheimer allows her characters their faults, their sex and drugs and rock and roll, and invites us to love them even when they think themselves unlovable. In one of my personal favorites, the story Professor Helen C. Anderson, we meet a character who in any other collection might be an irredeemably evil queen or one-dimensionally wicked stepmother. Yet Bernheimer allows us to see Helen for who she is, a mother of two daughters, one dead, an academic, a deeply insecure woman, a woman who's been wronged and keeps marching forward in her life despite that. Professor Helen C. Anderson is not especially kind or likable, but after her boss installs a one-way mirror into her office wall so that a talented ingenue may observe Helen to learn from her, and after Helen, looking into the mirror, sees her own, t quote, terrible glare, she tells the reader, quote, she's on the other side of it, always, I fear. And the old magic mirror on the wall casts a different reflection. Helen has never been the fairest of them all. And in fact, every kind of fairness is called into question, into tension, and we ache with Helen for it. Bernheimer offers no solutions, but she asks the kinds of questions that might, if you are lucky, lead you to the old-fashioned kind of answer, born of blood and effort, and perhaps also the strategic use of cold iron. <laughs> I don't know about you, but having my entire childhood concept of good and evil rearranged sounds like a pretty fun time. <laughs> Anyway, please come with me then further into the realm of the metaphorical. I promise I'll leave a trail of breadcrumbs, which has historically been an extremely effective method of finding your way out of dark spaces. Come with me into a house built of cardboard and stuck up on chicken legs, and please welcome Kate Bernheimer. Thank you. Thank you, Adriana, for that beautiful introduction. And thank you all for coming out tonight to the new writing series. It's chilly out there. I know you're not used to this kind of like blustery weather here, right? But thank you. And thanks to Brandon and Lily and Nina and Sage. Thanks for hosting me. Um, Lily and I were speaking earlier today about how hard it is sometimes to live up to introductions. I feel like I could just happily sit over there and let you do the fairy tale thing up here. That was really like enchanting to listen to and that sounds a little bit arrogant to say it was so enchanting to hear you talk about me but it was just really nice to hear all those fairy tale words because fairy tales are my um, first and great love so thank you and 
A friend of mine pointed out to me um, that the one-way mirror in that story is like, I probably was, what I meant was a two-way mirror probably, right? Like they have in observation rooms, but it, so it was a mistake. But before publication, it was caught, and um, I actually liked keeping it as a one-way mirror because it had much more of a, I don't know, incongruous, incorrect, perhaps magic portal impossibility feel to it. So I'm really glad that you picked up on that story. I'm just going to read you a few short stories tonight. Um, I'll try to keep the reading just to about a half an hour, and then that leaves us time for some questions. Um, I'll keep an eye on the clock here um, so that I won't overstay my welcome up here. Um, but I'm going to start with the title story and how a mother weaned her girl from fairy tales. And um, it's a story based on a Russian fairy tale called How a Husband Weaned His Wife from Fairy Tales. And it's a very brutal Russian tale. Um, the man in that story just um, like beats the love of fairy tales out of his wife. It's not a metaphor. So anyway, that story has always really um, troubled me because, um, well, not just because of the beating, obviously that, but the idea that you could um, hurt somebody for such an innocent pleasure um, as storytelling, listening to stories. Um, so this is a response to that story somewhat, but unfortunately, as is my want, I didn't quite manage to reverse the injuries. Um, anyway, how a mother weaned her girl from fairy tales. There was once a mother who's... Oh, and I do want to say that because these are fairy tales, they might, you know, they, they may not always make sense on first listen, um, or they may make perfect sense, but then when you revisit, they don't make much sense. But feel free, as you did in childhood, just to drift in and out listening to a story. That's what storytelling is for. It's not to um, be held up to too much close scrutiny in the moment. So don't worry if, you know, just follow along as you wish. There was once a mother whose only child loved fairy tales above all else and accepted as dolls only those that told stories. Of course, the child suffered as a result, for there were not many dolls that could perform such a task. Her mother suffered as well. When she went to the department store on birthdays or Christmas, she often left empty-handed, destined to disappoint her only child, who asked for more and more stories over the years. The child never said she was disappointed. She only said she wanted more fairy tales. That's all she ever wanted, she said. The ones with the goriest endings. Find the dolls that can tell those, won't you please? By her 15th birthday, the girl had precisely two dolls, one that told wonderful stories and one that told very bad stories. The girl was very good-natured. She told her mother, one cold winter evening, that even two dolls, one that could tell wonderful stories and one that could tell terrible stories, were better than no dolls, and that their household had far more fairy tales than many more impoverished homes, where perhaps no storytelling dolls ever had lived. And then she hugged her mother and kissed her goodnight. That very same night, at a late hour and after some vodka, the mother suddenly wondered, for the first time, how she might wean her daughter from fairy tales. Then there was a knock on the door. There stood a shivering doll, probably a witch, for she was life-sized, and she asked the mother for shelter. The girl's mother said, Can you tell stories? My daughter does not allow any dolls in the house that cannot tell stories. The doll saw that she had no choice. She was a rag doll, and she'd gotten wet. She had icicles dangling off her yarn hair. Her large fingers nearly were frozen, like links of meat one might keep in the freezer. I can. And will you tell them for a long time? All night. 
They agreed on some terms. The mother let the doll in and set her in a rocking chair by the fire where her cotton stuffing nicely and evenly warmed, but not too much. The mother gently woke up her daughter and said, There's a doll here that has promised to tell stories all night on the condition that your other dolls do not argue or interrupt. The daughter woke up her dolls, the one that could tell good stories and the one that could tell bad stories, and brought them to the living room and sat near the hearth. The mother had laid out treats for them all, lollipops with chocolate centers and the miniature globes, jelly beans, toast. The thawed doll spoke. Yes, I will tell stories, but there must be no interruptions, or I will tell no more stories to you. The mother, the daughter, and the two dolls ate their snacks and went back to their beds. The doll began. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. Over and over again, the doll repeated this sentence. The good doll listened and said from her little doll bed, That's a beautiful story, but I'm afraid your audience might become tired of it. I'm not tired of it. Of course, I think it's a lovely story, but... And then the bad doll shouted from her bed, That's not even a story. The big doll gazed coldly into the fire. Doll one, you've interrupted me. There would be no interruptions. In doll two... You have interrupted, and you have argued. That was only the beginning of the story. I was going to change it later. I was only just starting out. She stared at the fire. Her expression hardened, which was difficult, as her whole head was made of a large walnut shell. And then the hardness turned into sadness. The big doll stood, and she sighed, and she picked up the two littler dolls from their beds. I will take these with me and teach them how to behave. And she flew out of a window. The mother rushed to the daughter, who had been blissfully sleeping, dreaming the whole thing, just like a character might in an old storybook. A frozen rag doll, walnut-headed and big, played the lead role in the dream, as if she were an old illustration drawn hovering above the girl's very head while she was sleeping. The mother knelt down, clasped the daughter's warm hands in her own, and said, The dolls were told not to interrupt and never to argue, and now look what's happened. They're both gone. You won't get any more fairy tales. They're trouble, I tell you. They're trouble. The girl vowed never to ask for a talking doll ever again. Though smiling, she seemed very unhappy. The mother paced around the house for hours each day. If only we'd followed her rules, we could have seated the dolls in their miniature high chairs, taped over their little doll mouths, and listened to her fairy tales. Then we'd still have the dolls. We'd still have the fairy tales. We should have let her finish her story. It wasn't a very good story, but it was the only beginning. The daughter tried to comfort the mother. At least we still have each other. Maybe she was just lonely. Maybe she needed some friends. It was worse for her. She didn't know how to tell a good story. The daughter looked out the window at night, hoping to catch a glimpse of the dolls. It was something to hope for, anyway, that she might someday see them, floating around in the dark sky, the big doll repeating her bad story over and over again, while one small doll gently admonished, and the other berated the tale. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. An owl flew by a garden, sat on a tree trunk, and drank some water. That's the end of that one. Oh, you don't have to clap. Clap for the... 
for the bad story, you know, I'm just kidding. Well, I don't know. Um, this next story is called The Punk's Bride, and it was published in a magazine called The Master's Review, and then it was later published in a version around twice as long and twice as dirty as this one in the Denver Quarterly, I think, if I'm correct. Um, one of the great things, if you ever decide you want to write fairy tales, is you can just like write them again. <laughs> you can write them over and over, because fairy tales are variations on variations. They're just, there is no such thing as the original of any fairy tale, and you can just copy yourself as many different ways as you want um, to suit the time in your life or the images around you, um, your mood. Anyway, this is version one of The Punk's Bride, and it, like a number of my stories, is based on another fairy tale, as all fairy tales are, of course. Um, and it's a story called The Hare Bride that's best known in the Brothers Grimm version, but it's a version, it's a variation on a kind of story called like an animal groom or an animal bride story. Um, in The Hare Bride by the Brothers Grimm, basically a girl is forced to marry a rabbit and it doesn't go well. It's about a paragraph long of the story. It's really one of the saddest and most perfect stories ever written. So I entreat you to look for that, the hair bride. It's strange because it's the hair's bride, but it's called the hair bride. So I don't know if that's a translation issue or something more clever than that. Anyway, the punk's bride. There was once a woman and her daughter, and the daughter kept a beautiful garden with cabbages, daisies, etc. The daughter was in her early 20s and lived at home. She was a secretary and couldn't afford her own place, and she didn't want to move in with some friends who had asked her. Their apartment always was dirty, and there were different guys over most nights. The daughter wasn't a prude, but she got nervous about the idea she wouldn't know who was there when she was sleeping. The mother also was nervous and didn't like her daughter to go out at night. But sometimes the girl went out to the bar. It was on the same block as their little house. In fact, it was next door. It used to be a convenience store, but it had been turned into a bar. When the daughter went to the bar and sat on the back patio to smoke, her mother sat on their back patio, too. They had conversations through the chain-link fence. One bar regular was an attractive guy in a punk band. It was a good band, and he wore tiny hoop earrings. One night, after hours, he leaned over their fence and picked at the daisies. The mother said to the daughter, Can you go out front and ask that punk to move on? He's frightening me. The girl stood behind the screen door of her house and said, my mother wants you to leave. It was three o'clock in the morning. The mother and daughter were light sleepers and usually dozed in the front room on the couch instead of going to bed. They left the TV on all night, playing Mexican soap operas. The guy said, come hear my band play. We're playing at EJ's tomorrow. It's across from bar 22. I'll put you on the list. At bar 22, the lights were always too bright. They had red velvet booths and dollar whiskey cokes. It wasn't a cool bar, and the girl liked it there, but she didn't go. The next night, he showed up again around the same time and started to sing to the flowers a song about life on Mars. The woman said to the daughter, Please, I'm begging you, just get him to leave. The girl went out beyond the screen door. I don't know what's her problem, she said. She wore a pair of men's underwear and a black T-shirt with a white unicorn on it. The musician said, just get on the back of my bike. We'll go to my house and listen to records. He gestured toward his three-speed. It was white and rusted and had a kickstand. It had a Gordon Lightfoot bumper sticker on it, and one of the tires was flat. She shook her head shyly and went back inside. 
On the third day, the guy leaned over the gate and held his hands clasped together like he was praying. Jean, the mother said, Jean. Jean went outdoors and said, Can you, like, pick another garden to hunt? We just happen to live next to the bar. It isn't my fault. Jean, I've known you for years. Come over. It's no big deal. So she went, and they listened to records. They got really drunk on tequila, the kind that comes in a glass skull. The next day, she made him breakfast, then lunch, then supper. After a few years like this, he said they should get married. Who were the wedding guests? I can tell you this because someone told me. They were all musicians, except for the painters and writers, and all friends of the husbands, except for the one who was the head secretary at Jean's place of employment. She lived on a houseboat with her husband, who also was there. They were both very small and very kind. Jean imagined they had a nice life on the houseboat. A bartender from the bar that was next door to her mother's house served as the minister, and the altar was a hydrangea in the front yard. The wedding party went into the wee hours which Jean used to enjoy with her mother in front of the television, but now spent by herself while her boyfriend, now husband, was out at the bars. She used to love to fall asleep under a blanket with her mother on the scratchy, mustard yellow sofa. Now she stayed up alone. Later on that night, the husband was in the backyard with some wedding guests and others who just heard there was a party. He smoked a cigarette. He smoked 20. Then he smoked some more. He yelled through the screen to the kitchen, Jean, get the F out here. Everyone thinks you're being crazy. Act like you love me. Maybe he saw her crying in the kitchen, or maybe he didn't. Her husband went back to the party. At one point, another musician came in and kissed her, and she forgot her troubles for a few moments. But soon, he pushed her away and leaned on the counter and threw up in the sink. Then it got lighter outside, and her husband came to the screen and said, Jean, dude, make us some breakfast. We're starving, man. And you're such a great cook. When she didn't answer, he started yelling, F you, Jean, F you. You aren't any fun. You never were fun. You ruined my life. Expletive. After a while, I'm sorry, my daughter says, Mom, if you're going to put swears in your stories, you should be willing to read them out loud. But no, apparently not. Anyway, <laughs> after a while, the yelling stopped and it was pretty much silent. The party had moved somewhere else. Jean didn't know what to do. But eventually, she went into the bedroom and found a doll she'd bought at a thrift shop. Not her usual thing, buying stuff that she didn't need for decorative or emotional reasons. Yet she'd like the doll. It was nondescript, made of straw. Seemed like it needed a friend. She dressed the d straw doll in her clothes, gave it a stirring spoon, and stood it next to the stove in the kitchen. Then she went home to her mother. Her husband came back that evening and yelled, Open the GD door, Jean. Then he opened the door by kicking it in, even though it was unlocked, and he struck the doll hard on the head. That's when he realized it wasn't his bride. Actually, the girl didn't go back to her mother, and there wasn't any straw doll. That was from a great little story she never even had read. But she wasn't his wife. The end. Sorry. It ended a little abruptly. Yeah, I'm going to... My daughter's probably right about that. <laughs> um, I'm going to read you... I think we have a little time for more. I'm going to read you a newer story called The White Fox... And it was published by a very cool journal called Spacecraft. I don't know if you guys know it. It's out of St. Louis, and it's one of the most 
it's it's a wonderful journal. Um, it's online, Spacecraft Projects. You can find it pretty easily. Um, and the editor, Jillian, asked me to write something um, last year, and this is what I sent her. So, The White Fox. And it's a little different. It's not actually based on a particular tip. I stood on a city street in a crowd. I faced a balcony on a two-story building or house. The girl on the balcony was pretty and small. She resembled the other girls in the city, the solitary girls. She wore a dress that fell to the calf. She held a blender and brandished it as if in a play, though this was real life. She was proclaiming or announcing that she was going to put a girl in the blender, but just part of her, just part of the girl. There was blood in the blender that was a shade of bright red. The blender was around a third of the way filled. The blood splashed in the blender up to its rim as the girl waltzed around the balcony. She talked about what she was going to do to the girl. In an announcer's voice, with a theatrical tone, she said, Now we shall put the girl in the blender. Now we shall blend the girl. The girl who was going to be put in the blender was not there, but there was the essence of her. It may have been that only her hands would be dipped into the blender. Nevertheless, the clear implication was that the limbs would be blended. It next was revealed that the girl who would be getting put into the blender, though she was not there, was to have her back to the blender while all this happened. The girl would be blended with her back to the blender. The girl who was pacing the balcony and who was the announcer gestured toward the balustrade of the balcony. There, the girl who would be blended would stand with her arms held behind her back. Then she, or merely her hands, would be placed in the blender. Perhaps only the hands? The mechanics of all this was unclear. I felt uneasy and looked around, but no one else seemed disturbed. I was terrified. I had escaped. I walked along a forest path that was beautiful. There were lots of low trees. It was snowy, but the trees were in bloom, covered in pink peonies. There were also very large peony blossoms, pale pink, floating around in the air. Each one was cut in half, severed. They were not really in the shape of peony flowers so much as heads of iceberg lettuce, only more heart-shaped than those. They floated in pairs, that is, each half was together with the other half the blossom. I was trying to get home through the peony forest. I was barefoot in snow. I was not the small pretty girl from the balcony, but I thought about her. Eventually I passed by a white fox and thought she was pretty. She stood a good distance away looking at me. I stared at her warily as I walked in the snow. I could not take my eyes off her. When I was a distance past the pretty white fox, she ran after me and put her teeth on the calf. With her teeth on the calf, I walked faster and faster, but I could not shake her off. She followed me and kept putting her mouth around the calf with the teeth ready to bite. I was terrified. At last, I got to an office that was long and narrow with a brass gilded door with a window inside of the door. A sort of storefront. I stood at the storefront, or office. A man faced me at a desk. He was behind it. He was the person I had to speak to about the fox, because without the fox being taken indoors by its owner, I could not make it home without being hurt. I told the man this. He consulted his papers and then cleared his throat. He told me he could not reach the white fox's owner until later, because the girl who owned the white fox was a fox man, which meant she worked in fields of some nature with foxes. Till dark, the girl was a girl 
but she was also a fox man. So I either, the man told me, would have to walk home through the peony forest and risk getting mauled, or I could wait. I was terrified. That's that one. Should I read another little short? All right, let's see. All right, here's another that's from this long series that I'm doing along those lines. Um, I'll read you... I'll read you two or maybe three of them. They're very short. Um, Diamond. Barbara Streisand lounged in a decadent bed. Ivory silk sheets, white eiderdown comforter, cream-colored satin headboard. She had a nice bouffant updo and wore cream-colored peignoir. She held a pretty diamond between two elegant fingers up to the light of a sparkling and bright chandelier. She stared at the diamond intently. I was 15. I sat across from her watching her do this. Barbara Streisand said, there's something about diamond. The jewel? The object? The word, I said. The word, she agreed. She looked happy. Mm, How was that? Um, This one's called I Was Anne Frank. I Was Anne Frank. Meep had not come down to the secret annex, not come to the secret annex for many days. I, Anne Frank, quietly walked down the staircase, at the end of which was a door to outside. This was not the way the real secret annex worked. The real secret annex was reached by a staircase behind a bookcase. Here, there was a second little set of stairs that I carefully took in my black shoes. I turned past the door that was behind the bookcase and took those stairs. When I reached the bottom, I opened the back door. This led to a back alley. There it was dark, nighttime, and raining. I looked down, and on the pavement was a very large rain puddle, oblong, like our old bathtub had been, though now we bathed in a bucket. The puddle brimmed with dead bees. Streetlights reflected off the water in the puddle and also off the wet pavement. The bees were how I knew Meep, who brought us rations and books, had not come for many days. I, and Frank, already knew this because she had not come upstairs to the secret annex. But seeing the puddle filled with hundreds of dead yellow bees also confirmed it. The bee puddle was undisturbed. I poked my toe in the puddle a bit with one of my black shoes. I nudged the dead bees. They were so dead. I wore the black shoes, drab stockings, a drab skirt, a drab shirt, and a drab sweater. I was Anne Frank. I peered around the alley. There wasn't a soul. I suppose I would have gone back up to the secret annex if I'd known how to, but I stood in the alley for hours, wondering where all the bees had come from, for it was winter. Let's see. I'll just read you one more. I'll read you one more little tale. This one's called Girls Riding Horses on Cliffs by the Ocean or Sea. There were girls on horses riding the horses in a field toward the ocean or sea, galloping there. Many girls were on horses. I don't know how many there were or where they were coming from, but there were so many of them, and they were coming from the distance, from where the sun was setting. They were heading east toward the ocean or sea. It felt like sunset at the sand beach, 
of Round Hill, though this wasn't Round Hill and the sand beach is not east of Sunset at the Round Hill, east of Sunset at the Round Hill is the Shell Beach. The girls rode their horses across a vast open field of gold grass, winter season grass, not unlike the lawn in front of the mansion, the one at the Round Hill, though the setting was more foreign, more exotic, and this wasn't there. And the mansion lawn there faces, and the mansion lawn there faces east toward the harbor and the girls on horses were riding into the east toward the ocean and not toward a harbor at all. The water was choppy and deep, sort of green-brown, the color it sometimes gets at the round hill in certain light, nearly hazel like my mother's eyes are. It swirled with little waves and some sharper waves and also larger waves that were dark. It was dusk and mainly cloudy with some dim light but darkening out. The light was tan and yellow and the clouds were gray and it was very pretty and hushed. It was hushed. The girls wore long skirts. The girls were handsomely clothed, not garishly, but dramatically. Old-fashioned, dashing outfits, feminine and hearty. And while this was real life, that is, the girls were not in a performance, their outfits were costumes. The costumes were in pleasing hues, earthy and deep. The costumes were highly well-made of heavy, rich textiles, some of them had blouson sleeves, others more simple. All were long, buttoned down, some with high collars, some with big bows at the neck, some under leather or brown vests that had brown stitching and all had been very well sewn. The girls all wore high, strong leather boots under the long skirts. Some skirts were tiered. The girls wore muslin slips under the skirts and maybe even breeches or pantaloons. These were underneath the slips in the skirts. Some were on saddles, and they were all holding ropes, and it is possible some were on bareback, and all of them were riding western style. They drove the horses to go fast, cantering forward or galloping, whichever is faster. It was like a race, but they weren't competing with each other, though they were driven. They headed toward dark, jagged cliffs by the ocean or sea. Some took their horses up and down cliffs, and the cliffs led to more and more cliffs, and then to some lower cliffs, and then sandbars, but more cliffs were also out in the water. These were outcroppings, and the horses were running up and down the cliffs and outcroppings, and it was very dangerous. But the girls were succeeding, but it was very dangerous. Did I say it was dangerous? I said to no one, because no one was there. They're not trained for that a few times. I said to no one as no one was there. I don't think they should be doing that. They'll get hurt. I didn't know what was going to happen at the last cliff or outcropping in the water, and I was concerned for the horses because something would happen. They struggled. They worked very hard, with the sun shining on them, even though it was dusk, and I could see into their eyes, which communicated to me they were working so hard. The girls never fell off the horses. The girls were totally balanced. I could see each one struggling as she did it the horse. I was not one of the horse riders. I was a spectator. I stood in the field. I watched the horses and girls until I was designated to, or I was propelled to, or I was to and did, it happened that I was to and did, become the last girl to trot down to the beach where I was to join a long line of much younger girls who wore black leotards with short sleeves, a long line of girls in black leotards who'd been doing nice, gentle, old-fashioned petite jetés across the field. This line of ballerinas followed after the girls with the horses up and down the jagged cliffs and outcroppings. This was the second scene, but it was also not a performance. And the girls jetéed right past me, 
They were graceful and all had good lift. And then they jetted across a sandbar that was between the first cliff and the lower cliffs and outcroppings that were in the ocean or sea. I joined the line of girls in black leotards when they were down on the sandbar and began to jeter and said to no one, or maybe the last girl, I wasn't good at jetés. I never got enough elevation. I was older than the girls doing jetés. They were doing old-fashioned jetés, the cloud-like arced ones that are no longer in fashion. I didn't get much elevation, but I kept going forward. The girls in black leotards with short sleeves, which I also was wearing, were young, nine to eleven or twelve, and the girls on horses were older. I wasn't any of those ages. There were a lot of both kinds of girls. I didn't count them as they were all moving too fast, and there were so many of them. I couldn't tell how many there were, but I wanted to tell the number. No one was there. That's all. I'll stop there. Thank you. I know some of you have to be places at six, so feel free to... Depart, but I'll take questions from anybody. We have a few minutes, right? Do I think that maybe um, Nina calls on people, maybe, and then yeah. I guess. Are you going to tell? Do I call on people, or do you? Do you just? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And then I see. Uh, thank you for coming to San Diego and for reading for us, especially in this weather. I know it's not entirely ideal, but apparently San Diego does have some sort of seasons. Okay. It's great. I live in Tucson, Arizona, so coming to the university here and having this weather, I love it. So, yeah, we and don't your, get rain. Your story about the dolls was very resonating for me. I, I was actually very much in the narrative, and um, I actually do appreciate that you don't say foul language, so tell your daughter that. No, she's, she doesn't either use foul We don't have, she was just, she teases me when she yeah. says, she's like, Mom, maybe you shouldn't put the stories in, the words in your story, if you, you know, yeah. On that note, I do have a personal question. Um, yeah. I have a copy of the anthology that you were a part of, but mm-hmm. you can bring it with me. How can I ever get you to sign that once <laughs> you leave here? Well... That's so nice of you. Um, you could just mail it to me, and I can mail it back to you if you would like. That's easy. I'm easy to find on the Internet. I might know. You could just send it to my Department of English address, the University of Arizona, and no problem. Fantastic. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you had your hand. Oh. Okay. Thanks. Um, hi. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So I'm always really fascinated in fairy tale and folklore, um, and I also read a lot of fantasy novels. And I was wondering, what do you think it is about um, folklore and fairy tale that is different in tone or language or just stylistically from uh, fantasy in as a larger genre? Well, that's a really interesting question. My approach to questions like that, which really go to sort of like um, not just style, but genre or even um, form is what I what I'm really interested in is not so much what's different, but what's similar across forms. So I wouldn't really necessarily see a fantasy novel. Um, I just read an interesting first couple of chapters of a lesbian fantasy novel called Cinder. 
that's um, I can't remember the name of the publisher. I think they're in California. Very good. Um, I wouldn't necessarily see all that much difference between that and like Middlemarch, which I'm also reading, in that you can pull out the fairy tale tropes and motifs. You can see them like the breadcrumbs that you were referring to in your introduction. So readers recognize. Um, parts of a story. They also recognize certain kind of like gestures and moves within the story, things that might happen that might not otherwise happen in other stories. And from there, what I would say to fulfill the question that you asked is it's up to the individual author. Like what kind of books she likes to read and write, that sort of decides what's different, I think, the sensibility of the writer. Um, I mean, of course, there are for, there are kinds of books. Like if you're trying to write for a particular Harlequin series, you're going to get a list of rules and it's got to look exactly like it. And that might diverge respectfully from a book by Calvino or something, right? But it's really more about like the techniques that a writer chooses to exaggerate, minimize, jettison entirely, embrace, etc. Um, I mean, you can find... I, so I look really more for what's similar in how to recognize fairy tales within diverse bodies of work. But that's a good question. I understand the question. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. No questions, no? Yeah, it's okay. So once um, Andy Warhol, I don't know if you know who he is, but pop artist, was famously asked, like, what contemporary, what artists do you like? And he just said, I like them all, um, which, you know, probably was true coming from him. Um, I read them all. Like, I don't, I'm interested in, unfortunately, I'm limited because I only can read fluently in English, um, but that doesn't stop me from reading in other languages and trying by osmosis to get what I can and listening to stories and um, you know transnational stories and um, viewing them, looking at them in art. But you know, I the first fairy tales I encountered were in an edition of the Brothers Grimm stories, but there are hundreds of editions of the Brothers Grimm stories, adaptations, translations, etc. So again, I go to all of those, but I really look all around the world um, in so many different sources, from books written for children to academic tomes about fairy tales. If you read fairy tale scholarship, the great thing about fairy tale scholarship is there's a lot of storytelling in it, so you get stories indirectly that way as well. Um, one of my favorite go-to books just to look at the grammar of fairy tales, which then influenced a lot of translations into English over the last couple hundred years, is Maria Tatar's collection called The Grim Reader. And it's a translation of the first edition of the Brothers Grimm's. So I won't get too academic here about that. But it's got like all the, you know, the goriest bits that were sort of censored as the years went on, although not too um, efficiently censored because fairy tales are pretty, you know, grim stories, so to speak. Um, so I look at Tatar a lot for her translations, but I, I really read all across the traditions. Sorry if that's a disappointing answer, but yeah, I, I love them all. I mean, if, if you like fairy tales, the best place is the library. You go to the, like the folklore section in the library, and they're just like, if you liked a book, there's another one, <laughs> like just as good right next to it. And then there's another one. And the stories, like you'll get more and more familiar with them, but they'll always surprise you. So I just go to the library. Yeah. And then you. Yeah, me, yeah. Okay. 
Um, just wondering on that note, what is your writing practice for the storytelling that you're doing? Because it, it, it interests me how a writer approaches their craft and what their habits are. Sure, I'll give just like a brief, um, for the stories that I write that are based specifically on fairy tales, and I encourage anybody who wants to do this to do it, um, my process starts as always with reading, so I read multiple versions or variations on a fairy tale or a fairy tale type, um, sometimes up to a hundred, just to immerse myself in it, the feeling, the sound, the grammar, the options, um, and then what I always do is I just start by, I retype the story, um, I just, or variations on it, I just like the process, I do that with other books too, currently Middle March by hand, um, which is probably a little self-destructive, but um, <laughs> I, I basically start as a, I consider myself somewhat of a copyist, like if you're working, I don't know any of you are in fine arts traditions, but like how painters work from copying like the masters sometimes, not that you have to be able to do it mimetically exactly, but I like to start mimetically by copy, imitation as Angela Carter, a great writer of fairy tales put it. And then I start to kind of translate it, if you will, into my own motifs, images, language. And then from there, eventually, it just becomes something entirely else. So when I wrote How Mother Weaned Her Girl from Fairy Tales, I completely forgot that the German version is basically a mere paragraph long, and my story is much longer. And I thought, when I, whenever I finish, I'm like, oh my god, did I just plagiarize that, basically? And then I look back, and it's almost like it's so different. So, but it's a long process. Um, but just rewriting, writing, all writing is rewriting, right? I don't really, I just keep writing until it's done. But I start with copying. Yeah. I think you two had questions in the front here. Adrian and you both did, right? I guess I'm just wondering what specifically about the language or grammar of fairy tales draws you in again and again because you return to it. Yeah, and it's not just me, because <laughs> right, because we got because they've been around for so right. Why do we still have fairy tales? Why do we go back to them? Why do they? Why do they keep drawing us in? Why do they draw so many people in from like Disney to you to me to like fascists who you know use them in Nazi pamphlets? Right, the wolf was like depicted as in anti-Semitic style. So why are fairy tales, well first of all, fairy tales have like open borders. They welcome everyone into them. There's something about their language that seems to strike like a primal chord, um, whether it's like the grammar with which the sentences come, which some have studied on like a neurology level, like it's there's something about the um, syntax of fairy tales that I'm not a scientist, but somewhat mirrors like a language acquisition um, pathway in our brain. Like it's sort of there's something about the actually the the syntax that is I think like um, it has some like it just lights up some neural pathways that we get some pleasure from. Let's just put it that way. I mean I don't know much about that, but I think there's a primal quality to them into the way that they're made um, in that. You recognize, you recognize a fairy tale by how it's made and by what it feels like. Um, so there's a familiarity that allows us to tolerate, I think, some of their hard facts, some of the trauma. Um, my thoughts about this have like changed over time. I've been writing about this exact question for some 20 years. And when I started, I thought, well, fairy tales, they're like the skeleton of story. It's like girl, wolf, woods. Like, that's all, you, there's a story. We all know what story we're in, right? Girl, Wolf, Woods. Little Red 
Yeah, you guys know. You're like afraid to say it, but you're right. Um, but so it's sort of it's like a um, almost like a hieroglyphic for a story. There's something really primal about them, um, and these stories like exist around the world in iterations, like where people haven't in the past like communicate. Why would these stories exist all around the world? Is there something like wired into us for them? Um, now I'm doing a little bit of research. My, so my thinking has progressed, and I'm actually working on a book about this, hopefully finished soon. But my thinking now has come to embrace the idea, too, of fairy tales as trauma narratives and stories that, you know, the way trauma works is as a retelling. And to retell a trauma is the way you basically work it out and survive. And fairy tales, which contain so many traumas, what are they? They're retold over and over. So I'm really interested in, like, the overlap between um, some interesting studies on trauma and the syntax content of fairy tales. So I'm working on that a little bit. A book that's been really influential on me in that regard is The Body Keeps the Score, if you're interested at all. And I've been corresponding a bit with some people involved with that book about this question. Because it's, it's a big... This is the question, right? Why fairy tales? What is it? For me, they're the stories that um, I fell in love with reading through like the magical, they were the portal into books for me. And so I feel like I just have a positive association with fairy tales as happy, safe spaces to go to and things in childhood were not. So um, lovely, but fairy tales, they were, they were always there. Yeah. Thanks. They've never let me down. I'll get all hokey about it. Right. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, I yeah. have a question. Um, I think there's actually a little overlap with Adriana's question. Um, thank you so much for reading. I think you may have just sparked a new love of fairy tales. Cool. And something that came across for me is this quality of mythic time in the stories. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak to, like, do you kind of go to that mythic time space when you're writing? And how much are you thinking about, like, your own historical moment? I know if that's too abstract. No, it's a huge, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, it's a really, it's a beautiful question. Um, I mean, those of you here who write or who practice another art form or like a form of athletics, like ballet or running or football, you know, you get in a zone, right? Um, which is what it's called in, you know, sports science. But I think that it works for writing too. Is that the myth? Is that like myth time? It might be myth time, right? If myth time is all time, is like the now and the once upon a time kind of folded together, which is what the time, classically speaking, what myth time is and was, maybe I do try to get transported, but not like all the time, because a lot of writing isn't just like in being in myth time and looking at the full moon like last night and then like in a movie about a writer, like. You know, right? There's this comes a time where you're just like spending hours just like feeling like an idiot at the task, right? Kind of. So there's that. But myth time, um, that's really interesting. I think a lot about fairy tales as working on sort of a horizontal level. So in myths, we had like the gods, the humans. And in fairy tales, we've got like the magic is every day. The humans, it's more horizontal. It's less vertical and hierarchical. And I feel like it's a Ah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this perfectly, but yes. <laughs> um, I don't think that I'd like to go back. I don't, I'm not nostalgic about the past. I mean, think about Antigone, right? Antigone has become like a feminist icon in some circles, but she's a character written by a man, and women 
couldn't perform. So she was performed by a man. We don't know what that was like when Antigone was staged, right? We have no idea whether it was some kind of like satire about how horrible women were, right? And we don't know. So I don't want to go too far back, right? Where I'm not allowed to tell stories or have characters. Um, but I do think there's an element in fairy tales that's like, um, nostalgic in the emotional sense, not nostalgic for a time where he, where things were better because things were, were never better. And they're, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful that they could be better. Um, so it's not nostalgic in that sense, but nostalgic in that you can feel homesick for something that you didn't really ever know. And I think that I write, um, to go home, if that makes sense, to go home to story. I hate, I feel like I'm, I hope that makes you're you're nodding. Maybe it makes sense, or maybe you're like, okay, you can stop now. <laughs> I know, but but yeah, I do think that there's an element of the mythic in myth time in the process. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I also think like if you feel ignited in your interest um, about fairy tales, just go just go read them. Like there's so many, and if you don't strike gold on your first volume. There are thousands of others. Just keep trying because you might hit the wrong translation and it just doesn't sit right with you, but that's not a referendum on fairy tales. That's just not a good fit. It's not a good fit between you and whatever language the person's using. And you'll, fi you'll find your fairy tale if you keep looking. So I'm glad you're interested. Yeah. Should we do one last question? I don't know what you guys do for time-wise. Hi. After reading about like the psychology of athletes and other artists, they're so good at their craft that um, they basically don't really think about it. Um, mm -hmm. And like they're trying to improve on those micro things that nobody knows about or thinks about, right. but only they know about because they've reached that level. Yeah. Are you like that with your stories? Like when you read through your stories? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a gold medalist. Yeah. Yeah. I. Sorry. Go ahead. Like, do I? Yes, a lot. So, in part, to answer your question, I'll say a lot of what I do never makes it like into a book. You know, so there are like hundred. You know, like I do the equivalent. I always think of for sports. Well, I mean, I used to do a lot of ballet. So there's just a lot of training you have to do so that you can when you perform. You, you know you you know you can do it you're not afraid you can't do it it's not quite doesn't operate quite the same way in writing because i don't writing for me is not a performance in the same way um in that when i'm writing i just have one person in mind i always like an actual person when i'm working like a listener a reader it's not like this <laughs> um so it's not like a one-to-one -one relationship but there is an equivalent like i don't know do any of you play basketball like you know how you have to practice your free throws like you have to do like what a hundred a day because you gotta do it when you're in that game like you gotta be pretty you gotta do it and there are all these like really small adjustments as you say try it you could change this tiny little thing and it makes a huge um, shift and you figure something out. I don't think it works the same way in writing in that I can practice and I still every time I do it, it's going to be the first time and I might not get it right. But I do sentence work every day or on days when things, when I'm not in that zone and things aren't going really smoothly, I'll just do sentence work where I look for different kinds of sentences. I figure out how do they operate like, um, you know, like parallel sentences or I read grammar books, things like that. I guess I enjoy it. Um, and I look at things like, 
um, point of view, say, like I'm working on a novel right now that's omniscient. So I'm looking at novels thinking like, how, how does that author move from this character to that character? How did they do that? And then I, I practice it. So to answer your question, I, I think, yeah, a lot of it is through reading. Not so much, I, I, not so much only through like, there's no such thing as like writing in a, it's writing is like a way of reading as well. But does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I used to be very minimalist about my work so that I would want it to come out perfectly and I'd only want to write what was, you know, perfect. <laughs> you just can't do it. So that was not a good path. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's. I like your hat, by the way, your beret. Thank you. And I chose these stories specifically because like, of the weather. I don't know if you picked up on some weather and beaches and things like that, but yeah. But I like your hat for the weather. And it's red cap. So. I was curious. I think traditionally fairy tales are understood as being really linked to morals and morality. And I really liked, in my experience of listening to your work, that that wasn't part of them. And so I'm curious what your relationship to morals or So for me, like ethics, yay. <laughs> morals, nay. Um, so because morals has like the sort of suggestion of moralizing, right? And a lot of that has to do with like self-other relations and some hierarchy and unequal axes of power, all of that stuff. We're all very astute on it. Um, but the question of fairy tales' relationship to the cautionary or to the moral is a really fascinating history for a nerd like me. And um, I love teaching about that, too, um, because it's not so clear in a lot of the old fairy tales that are considered, as you say, they're considered moral stories. But like, what are they teaching? So if you look at Little Red Riding Hood, just to give a really quick example, all right, girl walks through woods, talks, gets distracted by pretty flowers, talks to wolf, goes to house. In the first known literary version of Little Red Riding Hood, she gets, she does a strip tease because the wolf says, take off your clothes. And she's like, okay. Um, gets in bed with the wolf and then figures out that nothing good is going to happen and Run, basically gets herself out of a bad situation and runs home to her mother. Um, the grandmother in that version just, like, no, dead, <laughs> like, eaten whole. So what's, like, what is the moral of that, right? We think of Little Red Riding Hood sometimes as a cautionary tale about predation, right? Like, be careful, little girls. But it doesn't really add up to that if you look at all the variations. If you remember one that you knew in childhood, Things turn out pretty well in the end in the versions we have for childhood. So how is that cautioning against anything at all if everything comes out? Okay, so even because they weren't really in olden times by the hearth side when people were really telling stories as a mode of survival, like Shahrazad, it was a way to get through the dark of the night. Just They weren't logical. They were for suspense. They were, as John Updike called them, fairy tales, um, the television and pornography of their time, entertainment. Um, so things didn't add up, but it's through the years of um, fairy tales migrating into the nursery as books for parents to read to their children. Once industrialization happened, you had to like get the kids to sleep because um, they had, you know. So fairy tales suddenly started to be used as childhood stories. And so authors and editors began adding in little moral flourishes at the end or in the midst of the story, but they don't 
add up and they don't make sense. And rather than feeling myself on a mission to reverse a moral or a caution that I feel is wasn't a good message, I revel in the nonsense of it and really kind of try to write against that, but not be, not with the result being a feeling of nonsense, but maybe just a feeling of confusion, like the question of like, who's good and who who's bad? Like something might clearly be a bad thing to do in one of my stories, but it may you may just have an uneasy feeling about that person who takes what looks like moral high ground um, to sort of question abuses of power, if you will, to put it pretty simply. Um, and I'm interested in like the intersection between the abuse of power and the cautionary. So that's sort of where I'm going, where I'm working on that. But when I sit down to write, I'm not thinking any of that. <laughs> like that's more when I'm talking about fairy tales, writing about fairy tales. When I'm when I'm writing, I'm really I'm thinking ethically, aesthetically, and very emotionally about the characters. Yeah. So, thanks. It's a neat, you guys ask very good questions here. Very wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you. And I should say that like the Seuss room is the perfect place for a fairy tale reading, right? Yeah, perfect place. So thank you for hosting me in the Seuss room. What an honor. Thank you. Thank you.